I want to read to you from Proverbs chapter 17 and verse number 17. It will be our key passage this morning. And this book of wisdom says this. It's a rather simple statement, but I want us to really think about it together. It says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that earth has no sorrow that heaven will not heal. And that is a testimony of your goodness to us coming in heaven because there is deep sorrow in this life. Some of it we bring upon ourselves and we readily acknowledge that and some of it is a part of living in a world that desperately needs to be restored and renewed. I thank you that in Jesus you have begun the process of renewing. God, we wait with eager expectation the completion of that. One of the things we deeply need in our lives in the midst of trouble and the sorrow of earth are real friends. And Father, I pray specifically today that you'd give us grace to think as those who trust and know Jesus, how we can ourselves be true friends to other people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We may be seated. The aim of our current sermon series is to build up gospel hope, real hope, trustworthy hope in the midst of hardship and suffering. If something is inevitable, it makes sense that we would prepare for it, right? And suffering and hardship is inevitable in this life. Jesus himself says, in this world you will have trouble. So again, we say this about every week, but just keep saying it. We are either, each of us, headed for trouble, right in the middle of trouble, or just coming out of trouble in the due course of time to go back into trouble. We are eagerly waiting for the new heaven and the new earth. And what we want to do this morning is to take a little bit different angle on this subject and talk about how we ourselves can be real friends to people who are in the midst of trouble. Now you don't have to raise your hand this morning, but how many of you have a dearly loved one who is right in the midst of great adversity? Maybe physically, spiritually, emotionally. You know somebody and you care deeply about them and they today are in the midst of great trouble because this series is not theoretical, is it, friends? I mean, trouble is seriously significant and it's so very present. The last time I had the privilege of preaching, we looked at Elijah in the cave and how God helped him. Maybe a way of thinking about this morning is we want to talk about how we ourselves can help those who are in the cave of despair. For the scripture says a friend loves at all times. A friend doesn't just love in good times. Those are the kind of friends that the prodigal son had, for example. When he set off to a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Friends, when he squandered his property and the money was gone, guess what else was gone? All the so-called friends were gone. No, a friend loves at all times. It's been said, you know your friends are those who walk in when everybody else walks out. And I believe that those who know Jesus should prove to be the very best friends anybody could ask for. So we seek to be friends 
to people on their worst day. Now, I wasn't here last Sunday. We were on a father-son retreat, and uh, I had, with a little bit of trepidation, signed my son Abel and up for an activity. Saturday afternoon, you could choose a couple of different things to do, and against my better judgment, I signed Abel and, up, Abel and I up for paintball. It's been a little while since I played paintball, and, uh, but I knew he would like it, and that's just part of being a friend, being a dad. You know, I don't know how this is going to go for me. I know he's going to love it, and so I'm going to go out on the course. And so we sign up, and the first, uh, you know, when, when, when men get together, it's all got to be a certain way. So, so, so we signed up for something, and the first round is called Team Deathmatch is the name of it. So they divide the whole group into two, and uh, Abel and I are on the same team, and the whole point of this round of paintball is you have to eliminate everybody else on the other team. So when the horn sounds, the game begins. And so I think the good strategy is to just kind of lay low. You know, I'm not in, in for, for a number of reasons I'm laying low, just to be quite, quite honest. In fact, I'm laying so low, I think I'm out of bounds. I was just kind of going to flank, and then all of a sudden there's this yellow tape, and I'm on the wrong side of the yellow tape. And long story short, by the time I kind of get myself back in the game, guess what? I'm one of the few remaining members of our team, me and another guy. It comes down to we've got two, and the other team has one. Well, the other team has one, and this is a little guy. He's, you know... Uh, hunker down in this little bunker area and I say we got two on one so I'm going to charge and the rule is you can't fire within 15 yards that's the rule right so so I uh, close the distance I'm within 15 yards and I say surrender that's what they had told us in the you know the little time ahead of the game to surrender and and he's kind of standing there and I'm pointing and they say if you don't surrender you fire right and and I've got him there when all of a sudden it feels like somebody took a two-by-four and just hit me over the side of the head. And I just kind of walloped and perhaps concussed. I don't know. I'm having my thoughts. They're, they're kind of all scrambled because I'm looking at this guy. And I know he didn't shoot, but when you're hit, you have to throw up your hands. And so I throw up my hands, and the guy in the bunker is like, did I hit you? And I was like, I don't really know. And, and uh, so you go off the course, and I come off, and I'm still trying to figure out. And then it dawns on me about the time that I'm... I'm off the course, my own teammate (laughs) shot me in the head. Friendly fire. But friends, friendly fire doesn't hurt less. It might actually hurt more. Here's the guy that I thought had my back and we were working in conjunction with one another, and he took me out of the game. Now, friends, that can happen in church life. That the people that you really counted on most, and you really thought they were with you and had your back, and you were working together, we're going to see this demonstrated from Scripture, is that sometimes trouble increases when those who should be friends end up being those who shoot friendly fire. Listen to this for just a moment. All throughout the New Testament, there are several commands that we'll call the one another's. In other words, those who've been reconciled to faith, uh, reconciled to Christ by faith, the Bible says there's all sorts of things that together we should do for one another. I'm not going to read the whole list. There's about 59 one another's in the New Testament, but Here are a a, a sampling, here is a sampling 
of them. So here's the standard by God's grace. We aspire to be at peace with each other. We just ran into trouble in the first one, didn't we? Do you have a, a, a brother or sister in Christ that you're not at peace with? What's the Bible say? Be at peace with each other. We can all recognize pretty quickly, right, that Jesus has come to make peace with us. How can those who've been made, uh, who have had peace with God through Christ, not have peace with one another? You say, if I don't have peace with a brother or a sister, what should I do? Well, my counsel to you is to be like Jesus. You take the initiative to establish peace. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen times love one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Stop passing judgment on one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another. When you come together to eat, wait for each other. Have concern for one another. Serve one another in love. If you keep biting and devouring one another, you will be destroyed by one another. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Carry one another's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive one another. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Well, I said I wasn't going to read them all, but I'm kind of going for it now, aren't I? They're all so helpful. Do not lie to one another. Forgive one another. Encourage one another. Spur on one another in, towards love and good works. Clothe yourselves in humility, one another. Anybody here this morning say, I don't need anybody like that in my life? Of course we do. Of course we do. We need real friends. But the word friend is a lot like the word love in our day. We don't really understand what it truly means. In fact, they go together, according to Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times. If you're in Proverbs still there with me in chapter 17, look one chapter over, Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 24. It says, a man of many companions, we might use the word acquaintances, a man of many companions or acquaintances may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I want to tell you these two Proverbs, 17, 17, a friend loves at all times. And in particular, Proverbs 17, 17 articulates when we demonstrate that we're real friends, a brother is born for what? Adversity. When things aren't going well, when the times are difficult, that's when we can demonstrate that we're really friends. Now, what I want to do is, is just sort of think through and give you four, hopefully, Real clear ways, and I think we'll see them in Scripture, biblical ways that we can be friends to one another. Well, let's start with this. If you've got an outline and want to follow along, I'm going to start with what I'm going to call our ministry of presence. That's P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, not T-S. Our ministry of presence. If you're in the book of Proverbs and want to join me in the Old Testament book of Job and Job chapter 2, I want to explain what I mean by the ministry of presence. In Job chapter 2 verse 11 is where we're going to jump 
jump in in a moment, but just so we're all on the same page, by the time we get to Job chapter 2, verse 11, does anybody know what's going on in Job's life? Everything that could possibly go wrong has gone wrong. Every way a, a man or a woman can suffer, Job is suffering in that way. He's lost everything. He's, he's come to financial ruin. He's lost everything that he owns material possession-wise in the days before insurance, right? I mean, it's gone and it's not coming back. More tragically, he's lost all of his children. His children have died very unexpectedly and very tragically. And now his own health is in ruins. So he is a man who is facing as much adversity as any person ever has. So we read in Job chapter 2 verse 11. Now when Job's three friends, there's our key word, heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, first of all, I want to begin with what Job's friends have right. There's a verb that's used a couple times in there to describe what they did. And do we all see it together? They came in person. That's the ministry of presence. When they heard what had come to Job's life, they went in person to him. This might be the most important demonstration of your friendship to other people is your personal presence. Friends go in person. I just want to exhort us under that as we continue to live increasingly in days where we do less and less and less in person. That the best and deepest and most abiding ministry will always be done in person. It says they made an appointment together. What does that say? What does that mean? It means they put some forethought into this, right? If they were Baptist, they would have shown up with a casserole, right? They would have come in person and here's the covered dish and here's... But they, but they came in person. They sat with him. They wept with him. On the front end, they're real friends to him. Now, I want us to overcome a hurdle together because I know it's real and I've felt it in my own life, and no doubt you have too, that when a person is suffering, oftentimes we'll say, I don't know what to do, and if I go, I don't know what I'll, help me out, say. So you ready to overcome an obstacle? The moment you walk in the door in person, you have said what needs to be said. So you just lay down the burden of, I got to figure out a way to explain this or articulate this or say, I don't know what I'll say. It's okay to not know what to say. Do you know what? As a matter of fact, oftentimes you ought not say much. Let me give you an illustration of this. We're talking about someone in a crisis situation. So if you have a crisis situation and you call the EMTs, guess what the EMTs don't do? They don't begin to explain all the things you should have done not to get yourself in the situation that you're in at the moment, right? Well, you shouldn't have eaten that. That would have been a 
a place to start. You wouldn't be undergoing, you know, the EMTs, you know what they go? They show up in person to help. And you can think of it that way. When you know a person that you love dearly and they've met something unexpected and they're in a crisis situation, you just make an appointment and you go. And here's what they do. They showed him sympathy to comfort him. They didn't say anything. They showed sympathy. As a matter of fact, it goes wrong when they start speaking, quite frankly. Look at it. Uh, <laughs> if you've got little headings in your Bible, the heading of, in my Bible of Job chapter 4, for example, is Eliphaz speaks. He was helpful right up to the moment he started doing that. Job 8, Bildad speaks. Job 11, Zophar speaks. Job 15, Eliphaz accuses. What's the result? Look at Job 16. Job answered and said, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if you were in my place, I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it, leave, uh, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company and he's shriveled me up. That's not what we want to do, right? Not making things worse, we make things better. Well, it begins with a ministry of presence. So again, friends, uh, you're going and being present at the graveside, at the visitation, in the hospital room, in the home, or any number of other places. Being there and being present in person is the most significant demonstration of friendship. Again, you don't need to preach a sermon. You don't have to have a perfectly coherent theological explanation for why this happened. Or to have just the right words to say. Now, as an example of my own life, when my dad passed away unexpectedly, I have to tell you, I don't remember particularly what any one person said. But I do remember who showed up. So it begins, we help the hurting by our ministry of presence. Now, second is going to be we seek true fellowship. Now, we want to pause here because fellowship is kind of a churchy word, right? And what does that really mean? Uh, a way that I want you to understand it is fellowship is a level of friendship that's only possible by two people, both redeemed by the grace of God through Christ. That's what fellowship is. I do believe that no one has the potential to have deeper friendships than two people who both know and are becoming like Jesus. I left a couple of my books down here that I was going to use at this point in the sermon, so I'm retrieving them now. And I want to read um, from this little book, uh, True Friendship by Vaughn Roberts. He says on page 20, he talks about this British monk. Anybody into British monks? No? Okay. From the 12th century, meaning a long time ago, right? This British monk, Elred, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Elred, 
He said there's three types of friendships. There's carnal friendship. That's based on the shared pursuit of pleasure, which is a common delight in the same thing. Maybe there's somebody you like to golf with or watch the game with or have coffee with. Just just something that you both have in common you both like to do. And then there's worldly friendship. That's based on mutual advantage. Maybe business partners that come together and you all have the same goal in mind or want to build a business and you just kind of work. You're working in the same direction. But then he says that there's a third type of friendship that's the deepest. And this is spiritual friendship, which is grounded in mutual commitment to follow Jesus. And then Vaughn Roberts writes, over the years, I've formed close bonds with fellow stamp collectors at school as we shared the excitement of a new addition to our collections, with colleagues as we spurred each other on through the trials of exams, and with teammates In sports, as we trained hard together and cheered for one another in matches, but my deepest friendships have been with other disciples of Christ. Christians have the ultimate common passion and shared goal, which encompasses all of life. We have been called as brothers and sisters to belong to Christ's family as we travel along the way of the cross throughout our lives with our eyes fixed on the new creation that is to come. Now, there are times in life that you need an EMT, perhaps, in an emergency situation. And then there's maybe, uh, if that's remedied, and you go to rehabilitation, physical rehabilitation, or you're going to extended stay. And that's what I'm getting at here with fellowship. Let's go back over here to Proverbs. Man, I found this passage so incredibly helpful this week. Proverbs chapter 28, verses 13 and 14, I think gives a description of what we want to aim for in the context of our Christian friendships. Remember, we've said before, so say again, you want to not just have friends who are Christians, you want to have distinctly Christian friendships. One of the characteristics of such a relationship would be Proverbs 28, verse 13 and 14, where it says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So let's keep this this passage in focus for, for just a moment. Whoever conceals his transgressions. So right there we have a huge barrier to friendships, quite frankly. Now, here's a probing question. Are we ready for it? Does anybody really know the real you? I'm talking about the real you. Does anybody know the person that not everybody sees? Because here's where we're tempted, and this is why Americans, all the research indicates, are just so incredibly lonely people. Because we know us in a way. (laughs) I think there are ways we deceive even ourselves, or especially ourselves. But we're tempted to form friendships and relationships with other people that are really on the basis of concealing. We'll be friends so long as they don't know these things about me. And we feel this pressure to, to post it like we've all got it together and so on and so forth. There's one temptation. We'll see another here in a moment. But whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Contrast, whoever confesses. So we need some people, real friends, that we can really trust. 
We have either concealing relationships or freeing friendships. That's what this proverb is getting at, right? It cannot be both. Often, again, we attempt to, to make friends on the basis of making ourselves look better than we really are. Or we take a half measure, which I think the contemporary American church, we can use some biblical edification on this matter. But who confesses, are y'all reading with me? Is that where it stops? Who confesses and, y'all with me? Forsakes them. Forsakes what? Transgressions. So here's just real quick. Two temptations. We, we're tracking together. One is to conceal our transgressions and act like we don't really have them. Do you know what uh, equally dangerous and I think equally uh, frequent is when people in the church decide, hey, we're going to get real about this. And we're going to be transparent. We're going to be open. They confess, but not to the end of forsaking. We're tracking together. So, we're, we're, so, so one barrier is that we'd be a church family where people just feel like they can't really talk about anything. We don't want anybody to find out about this. We're going to conceal it. And, man, this is going on in my home, but I don't want anybody at the church to know about it. A, a, a second temptation is that we're open and honest about it. The phrase I hear a lot is just being transparent. But being transparent or open or honest or keeping it real, although I know that's quite a dated pop culture phrase. Y'all bear with me. But not to the point of forsaking. We need Fellowship. This is what fellowship is, friends. Is when we can be open and honest and confess and share. Here's what I'm really struggling with, but it's to the end of obtaining mercy. Because there is a way to confess that actually hardens the heart. That's what he says. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. That's the distinction. Forever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. True fellowship allows room for honesty and obedience confessing and forsaking. Let me illustrate this for you. This happened, and I've used this as an illustration not too long ago. Um, we we're taking a trip. It's actually for Mary Claire's birthday last year. Uh, we were going to go to Bush Gardens. And so Julie and I and Mary Claire were traveling to Bush Gardens, and we were on, I believe it's Highway 64 there, and we we're getting real close to Williamsburg. And we're, actually, I think we're in Williamsburg, and we're getting real close to Bush Gardens when I got a flat tire. I was in the passing lane of the highway, and if you've ever been on 64, I mean, it's busy. So I got to pull off the highway, right? Now, what's the problem that I have at this moment? I have a flat tire. The problem's pretty obvious, right? Now, what if we're riding along and Julie says, sweetheart, we have a flat tire. And my response is, I don't want to talk about that right now. We're going to Bush Gardens. Well, sweetheart, you've got a flat tire. No, I don't. Honey, it's dangerous to be on the road right now. You've got a flat tire. Our plan was to go to Bush Gardens. We're going to go to Bush Gardens. Now, some of you have lived that life. There is an obvious, clear issue that needs to be addressed. But someone's trying to conceal it. They're kind of acting like it's not true. You've got significant sin issues in your life. You can spend your whole life saying, no, I don't. No, I don't. Maybe you've got big issues with lying or lusting, or greed, or envy, or a spirit of fear. And, and it's obvious, and those that love you best can see it, but you want to just sort of act like it's not true. Well, that's concealing it. On the flip side, suppose the flat tire's there, and I'm riding along, and, and Julie says, 
honey, we got a flat tire. And I said, I know I do. It is so bad. The tire is so flat. This is not the way I wanted the trip to go. I just want to be transparent for a moment. My tire is flat. I wish it weren't flat. In fact, I remember the days that we were on the same car and we were driving along and all the four tires were full of air. And now I'm going to go and I'm going to write and post about the flatness of my tire. I kind of get a pithy, witty, well, I'll I'll stop, never mind. (laughs) But do you understand what I'm saying? What needs to happen? Well, to use the proverb word, the tire needs to be changed. The tire needs to be forsaken. Because here's the deal with the tire. It has interrupted everything about my life, but that's not all. What else is the issue? I'm actually endangering all the cars around me, too. What needs to happen is I need to pull off the side of the road to be honest with what's going on, to be transparent about what's going on. But I also need to get the tire changed. Amen? Now, when we had this happen, either an angel of the Lord or it truly was an off-duty state trooper. That's what he said he was. He showed up, got out. Before I really knew what was happening, jacked the van up, changed the tire, helped me out. For our purposes, do you know what he was to me? A friend. He was a friend. Got dirty, helped out, served. Again, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Friends, God is good in our lives that the same gospel that reveals our sin is the gospel that helps us overcome our sin. The same Jesus, the same Holy Spirit, the same word of God that reveals this is an issue that needs to be changed in your life is the same spirit, the same word that will help us change. Now, that's what seeking true fellowship is. We have friends that help us confess and forsake. Real Christian friends tell you the tire is flat, but they'll also stay right beside you to help change the tire. Until the American church cultivates friendships like that, we will be pulled off on the side of the road. Our ministry of presence, seeking true fellowship. Number three, practicing loyal friendship. Practicing loyal friendship. Another way of saying this, is that we practice long-term friendship. There's a brother who sticks closer than a brother, right? That's what a friend does. They stick with you. They're not like a fair-weather fan who cheers for a team when they're winning, and then when they're (laughs) losing, they're not as big a fan, so to speak. In his book, Being There, another book that I would commend to you, Dave Furman. Man, Dave Furman is a pastor who began to uh, uh, deal with a nerve disease in both of his arms that made it difficult to write, made it difficult to stand, made it very difficult to do much of anything physically. He writes, 
initially after a loss, injury, sickness, it seems as though everyone wants to help. But as time goes on, the excitement to help wanes, and the one hurting will often feel neglected or forgotten. There's an important ministry of loyalty, of sticking with the hurting that can be tremendously helpful. I was doing a wedding one time, and it was the uh, rehearsal and or the rehearsal dinner where family members start to stand up and share some recollections. And uh, I knew the groom pretty well, and his mom stood up and told a story that when her boys were fairly close in age, they would fight. She would respond when they were little guys by making them wear one T-shirt. In other words, they had to put both of their heads through the neck hole. Thank you. And they would have to wear it, in her words, so that they'd learn to stick together, right? Through the rest of your life, you're brothers, and you're going to be in it together. Now, I'm thankful my mom never did that. But the body of Christ just has one head, and he is loyal. He does not forsake. He sticks with us. He is in it to the end. And in light of that, the fourth is, you're going to have to do this if you're really going to be friends with other people. And it's going to, you're extending forgiveness. Extend forgiveness. If you don't learn to forgive, you'll never have real friends. I'm going to piggyback on Dave Furman again. I thought what he says is really insightful. In his book, Being There, How to Love Those Who Are Hurting, on page 53, he says, when you're ministering to those who are hurting, it is inevitable that they will offend you. Maybe a spiteful word or a declaration that you are unhelpful or simply a neglect of their normal responsibilities towards you. This was certainly the pattern in my marriage during the most difficult times. I was a difficult man to be around and was constantly berating my wife with comments that were unhelpful and even hurtful. I blamed her for any new pain I experienced and told her that she wasn't doing a good enough job caring for me. She could have easily reacted in defense or anger back to me and the battle would rage on and on. These these times will come for you, the silent sufferers. In the midst of them, you need to be faithful to the exhortation of Peter. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for those for, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. The, it goes on to write, skipping just a little bit, he says, The only way we could be unforgiving to others is if we forget how compassionate and forgiving God has been to us. We're going to have to extend forgiveness. We have to overlook some offenses. Back to Job. Man, if his friends would have been able to show up, and if they had anything to say, <laughs> not a lecture or long-winded diatribe. But I tell you what, Job's enduring such suffering that if you read carefully his book, there's some things he says that are wrong. He doesn't have everything right. He says some things about them that aren't right. And that's why you got to cultivate, I think loyalty and forgive. well, they all really go together. <laughs> but forgiveness, you're going to have to extend some forgiveness. 
I want you to look at those four characteristics of a true friend, ministry of presence, seeking true fellowship, practicing loyal friendship, and extending forgiveness. If you think about them with me for a moment, I think you would say amen to the statement, what a friend we have in Jesus. He has certainly demonstrated the ministry of presence, has he not? I mean, that's what the incarnation is. He is God with us. He's God come in person. He sent many prophets and sent apostles. But we have a Savior who came in person. And he sought with us true fellowship. He did not come to just point out all the problems. He offers us much more than being honest about the problem, though that is helpful. He came to free us. And he is loyal. Amen? He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And in his coming personally and seeking true fellowship and loyalty, has he not extended to us amazing forgiveness at great cost to himself? Friends, it requires nothing less than the shed blood of Jesus on the cross to forgive us of our sins. You know, his enemies had this interesting phrase that they would use when they really wanted to, in their minds, get under his skin and criticize him. You know what it was? So there goes Jesus, that friend of sinners. They saw the truth of that statement without recognizing the wonder of it. You know what the only hope is that I have? That Jesus is a friend of sinners. In fact, I think that might be, in some ways, the defining characteristic of hell, friends, is its friendlessness. And we have a friend who's come in person and has sought true fellowship, loyal friendship. He is... The friend who loves at all times. He is the brother who has been born for adversity. The greatest adversity we've ever faced is the adversity of us as sinners standing before a just and holy and righteous God. In conclusion, I want to ask two questions before we go to our invitation. The first is this. Have you recognized in your own life what a friend you do have in Jesus? Instead of Job's friends, there's three of them, right? When they heard the calamity that had come upon Job, they made an appointment together to come and offer him sympathy and comfort. Well, I think those three glorious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Bible would say they made an appointment and Jesus came. In fact, that's what Galatians says, at the appointed time, He was born of woman, born under the law. He's come to extend friendship to you. He's come to redeem you. He's come to forgive you. And we do not have a Savior who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We do not have a Savior who himself, what we'll talk about next week when we're gathered around the Lord's table, who himself has suffered. What a friend we have in Jesus. Now I love and believe And preach the scripture that Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Yet it was Jesus himself who said, I no longer call you servants. I call you, help me out church, call you friends. And he knew what he was talking about when he used that word. He is the friend that loves at all times. He is the friend that loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He is the friend who extends peace when we were rebellious. So question number one, 
is do you know the friend that you have in Jesus? And number two, by his grace, are you seeking in your own life to be a friend to others like Jesus? And what I want to say to you is I don't know that you can answer the first question yes and the second question no. I think they go together. Knowing the friend that we have in Jesus, by his grace and the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit, we will begin to be a friend to others like Jesus. So during our invitation, those are the two questions. In a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And what I'm asking you to do is don't be a non-responder, right? That's the worst thing you can do when it comes to studying the Word of God, is to be a hearer and not a doer. That's what the Bible says. Don't deceive yourself by listening, but then not doing. I'm really asking you, if you know the friend you have in Jesus, the response I believe you would do is you would praise His holy name for who He is. And then the invitation's open. You might have someone in particular on your heart or mind that is really going through something, and you may want to come here and pray for them. If you've got a burden, I'll stand here. If you want to pray with me, that'd be my joy. But here's, to be, here's how to be a friend like Jesus. We would respond by saying, well, God, would you help me selflessly and faithfully minister in person? Would you give me grace to pursue true friendship? Not fake and shallow friendship, but true friendships that we could help one another confess and forsake our sins God I need your grace to be a loyal friend I go through spurts or I think I'm a real friend and then life gets busy and I just get self-centered and God give me grace to be a loyal friend or maybe particularly for you this morning you would seek to be a friend like Jesus by being a forgiving friend you might say I didn't start it hey guess what You, you know what I'm about to say don't you Jesus didn't start it either. He took the initiative to seek reconciliation even when the cause of the rift was not his own. So God, I need your grace to be a forgiving friend. Let's stand together and we're going to pray together and then the Holy Spirit will lead you. Your response might be to sing with all your heart to the friend that you have in Jesus. It might be to come to the front and get on your knees and plead with God for grace to be a real friend to other people. To put others first. Maybe one, of the, one another has grabbed your attention. You say, God, I need help to be humble towards one another. To bear others' burdens. God, I pray in Jesus' name, Two things, number one, that you would give us greater knowledge and understanding and sight of what a friend we do have in Jesus. And secondly, Father, I pray that you'd give us grace. We understand we're not going to do this perfectly, but in humility we ask that you would help us to be a place of true friendship. That we are friends who love at all times. God, lead our invitation time. May it be worshipful and may it... Foster obedience among your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.